This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to the AirPod. In a week that changed the face of the royal family forever, we'll be taking a look back at the life and legacy of Prince Philip, who passed away at the age of 99 on Friday, April the 9th. Over the episode ahead, we'll be taking a look back at his military career, his achievements as the Duke of Edinburgh, but of course also his 73-year marriage to the Queen that started with a fairy tale romance. We'll be hearing all of that later on. But of course, today started with a very sombre announcement from Buckingham Palace, with the statements written on behalf of the Queen that announced the death of her beloved husband. Uh, They give the details that he passed away peacefully in the morning at Windsor Castle. And of course, it followed three weeks uh, reunited with the Queen after that month-long visit to hospital. Well, as the news broke, world leaders rushed to pay their respects, starting with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who mourned Philip in a statement remarking that he had earned the affection of generations in the UK and around the world, adding that the royal family has lost not just a much-loved and highly respected public figure, but a devoted husband and a proud and loving grandfather, father, and in recent years, great-grandfather. In a statement from President Joe Biden and First Lady Dr Jill Biden, uh, they remembered Philip and praised his years of devoted public service, saying that his legacy will not only live on through his family, but in all the charitable endeavours he shaped. And there were many of them, 830 charities and organisations that he supported during his 65 years as the Duke of Edinburgh. We also saw former President Barack Obama also pay his respects, reflecting on Philip and the Queen's grace and generosity during his first meeting with the couple here in the UK. That was in an Instagram post uh, that he shared alongside a photo of that first visit. Now, while all of this happened behind the scenes, funeral plans were already set in motion as the Queen also entered an eight-day period of mourning following the death of her husband. Uh, This basically means that she'll refrain from carrying out any royal duties during this time, affairs of state will be put on pause, but it also leads up to the funeral that will take place at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. This is not the state funeral that Prince Philip worried that he might have. In fact, Uh, For those that didn't know, he was very involved in the planning of his own funeral, working alongside the Lord Chamberlain's office at Buckingham Palace. For him, it was making sure that it was a fuss-free occasion, one that really focuses on family and friends coming together to pay their respects. And of course, because of the coronavirus pandemic and in light of current government advice and social distancing guidelines, there are sort of modified funeral and ceremonial arrangements that have been made for the Duke of Edinburgh that wouldn't have been the case had it not been for the pandemic. Across all the royal residences, uh, Union flags, that's the national flag, have been flying at half 
mast, although the Royal Standard continues to fly at Windsor Castle, where the Queen is, of course, currently in residence. As I said, this is a funeral that will happen that keeps within the wishes of Philip, who wanted a royal ceremonial funeral and not a state funeral. That also means that he will not lie in state. There are still many details about the funeral to come from the palace over the days ahead, and that is all currently being put together uh, in accordance with government guidelines. We, of course, are still in a national lockdown here in the UK, and that also affects travel restrictions, which will also have an impact on who can attend that royal ceremonial funeral. Because, of course, it is still tradition for heads of state across the Commonwealth to be in attendance, but with current travel restrictions, it's not known how that might work. Of course, at the same time, Prince Harry, as far as we know, is still in California, and I'm sure he'll be doing everything he can to make sure he's at the funeral of his grandfather as well. If there's anything that we know, it was that he was incredibly close to Prince Philip. It was something he spoke very openly about on his recent James Corden appearance, about their Zoom calls together. We're going to take a look at the incredible life of the Duke of Edinburgh, a man who was born Prince of Greece and Denmark at his family's villa on the island of Corfu on June 10th, 1921. Well, earlier today, I caught up with royal author Robert Jobson to dive deeper into the world of Prince Philip. His new book, Prince Philip's Century, The Extraordinary Life of the Duke of Edinburgh, tells the full story of his remarkable life and achievements and how after marrying a young princess, Elizabeth turned from dedicated military man to royal consort to Queen Elizabeth II. You spent a lot of time really sort of immersing yourself in his world and his life and retracing some really important footsteps. The man that he was when he passed away is very different to the man who married the Queen. Could you tell us a bit about his journey, sort of as uh, moving from just Philip to the Duke of Edinburgh? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a very sad day, but I think when a person of 99, nearly 100 dies, you should be looking at the great achievements and of a, a, a good life lived long. Um, and I think that's what most people are now. I mean, he's he was this dashing young man, um, very well connected, very regal bloodline. I mean, he's um, they, people say that he was a member of the Greek royal family, but really he was related um, through the Danish royal family and, the, and um, the German um, aristocratic and regal lines to, he was a great, great grandson of Queen Victoria. So, you know, independently, he was somebody that had a regal blood. But he certainly didn't have the fortune because, of course, having been born in Greece on the Isle of Corfu, the Greek royal family were ousted. He had to make a dramatic escape and um, eventually ended up in France with his family where they settled. They didn't really have in terms of their background and their lineage, very, very much money. They were sort of living off of relations, really. Um, but he, he, uh, he emerged as a pretty stoic character. His mother had mental illness problems. Um, his father pretty much abandoned him. And he ended up being raised by his uncle, first um, the, uh, on his mother's side, both of his uncles, Uncle George and then Dickie Mountbatten, who were great influences upon him. But he was a, quite a stoic character. And he went to School, uh, boarding school in uh, in uh, Gordonston in the far north of Scotland, and really learned to be self, uh, uh, sort of his self determination. Somebody who didn't believe in suffering falls gladly. Didn't really believe in um, you know in, in 
he used to just say, just get on with it. And that's really what he <laughs> he lived his life by. Um, and it was really Dickie Mountbatten that engineered the meeting between Elizabeth and um, Philip that changed both of their lives. I think people often forget that once upon a time, Prince Philip was an outsider in the firm himself. He brought a very different perspective to the firm. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I and mean, he was very much an outsider. He was, he, although, um, and, and in those days, the men in grey suits did really exist. I mean, they were. They were very military figures. They were people that um, really just saw their job as to support the Queen, the monarch, the symbol of, and the sovereign of the, uh, and the head of state. They had no role for Prince Philip. I mean, it was not like the presidency where the, the first lady has her own office and her own people looking after. He had to eke out that role himself. And although the Queen, you know, allowed him past him to do certain duties, she also had to have a balancing act uh, to try and keep the um, courtiers at bay. I mean, they used to see him as this Hun, they used to call him, as he of his German roots, and found him brash and rude. And he was determined to modernise things inside the palace. And, uh, and he was, you know, he, he was the first person really to, he was the person that brought the uh, television and cameras into the coronation ceremony. He was the person that really wanted them to, to conduct the first TV interviews and did so, and was a great believer in science and technology. So, no, he was somebody who really did change, want to change the way things were done. Um, there was one particular thing, I think, because Queen Victoria had a cold once, she ordered a bottle of whiskey. From that moment onward, the bottle of whiskey would appear at the Queen's bedside. Um, he wondered why <laughs> this bottle of whiskey kept appearing, and he found out that it was because of this thing with Queen Victoria, and he, he immediately cancelled it. You know, he, he was he was he found some of the things completely ridiculous and outdated, and the Queen had to sort of temper that that enthusiasm to change things. He definitely had an eye for sort of looking at the firm as, as a brand, as a business. And I think that he was very aware of the public opinion or public perceptives of the royal family itself. How do you think that helped modernise the family over the years? Well, you know, the royal family, until really, I mean, we saw with the Duke of Windsor, that when he became king, um, he found it very difficult and it was soon he was... You know, the, the old school, the old firm courtiers had really, and the, the establishment under Baldwin had got rid of it. Um, and so really with George V and VI, it was still very much like an Edwardian institution. Um, and the Queen, I don't think, would have done change North a lot either. She was somebody who didn't really like change. But Philip realised that you, you cannot, you have to stay, just stay in tune, in step with the general public. You have to go with the times as well as being seen as part of tradition. And I think actually that he did that very well in persuading mainly the Queen to go along with his ideas. We saw that with the documentary, The Royal Family. Um, and as head of the fact, and that he actually found it was quite a good documentary. He enjoyed it, although I remember the Royal Family said the Queen didn't. Um, at the time, it was groundbreaking. The role of consort to the Queen is, I think many would say, quite an unforgiving position. And 
I think on paper, one would have seen that or thought that it may have not worked out. Of course, he came in uh, with a sort of hard, hardcore military background. He had to sacrifice quite a lot just to take on that role. And of course, as, as a sort of strong character, it's something he's known for, quite the alpha male, uh, being sort of the subservient husband was never going to be something that should have happened or worked out for him, but it did. What do you think was sort of the recipe to his success in the role as Duke of Edinburgh? I think he was a pragmatist. I think he knew his strengths and he knew his limitations. Um, but more importantly, I don't think it was a subservient role. I think that was something that maybe the media, and that's the perception. I think he saw it as a, a role of serving the crown and the queen as, as, a, as, as a figurehead. Um, but, you know, once the uh, behind the scenes, he was very much head of the family, and she would defer a lot of things to him. Um, and and they in a way that a nineteen sort of forties fifties bride would. So I think they played the role of a traditional husband and wife behind the cameras, um, in front of the cameras. His main job was to shine a light on the queen. He he realised that early early on. It wasn't about him. It was about her. And. He was there really as her liege man in life and limb, somebody who would there be there to support her in everything she wanted, whether it be advice, whether it be um, his viewpoint, whether it's just to make her laugh and relax just before giving um, her first ever television broadcast at Christmas. All of these things, he knew he had a role to play, but I think it's, it was as a husband and father that he saw his role as the most important. They, they had a very good marriage in that respect. They knew what was expected of the other person. Shining a light on the, the Queen's work and her role was, of course, as you say, one, one thing that he did extremely well. But he also was known for sort of being the Queen's advisor and a very successful one at, at that. Um, how do you think his advice and his role in the Queen's life helped shape her role as head of state? I think we should underestimate the Queen's ability to understand an understanding and appreciation of her role at the beginning of her reign she had the mentor of, of the prime minister sir winston churchill who she valued very highly she then i think had to grow into that role and i think it was then that she had the most um need for philip in terms of advising her on on the job of, as such i think that as she got into her 30s she was more comfortable in that role and particularly when she had people such as in the 60s, Harold Wilson as her prime minister, who she got on very well indeed. I don't think she particularly needed Philip at that, at that time in terms of doing what she does in her duty. That must have been a difficult time for him and frustrating for him. Um, and I, but but it, it was then that I think he realised he had to throw himself into other things, you know, such as the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme, such as travelling the world should he want to, should, expanding the role of his role in the world, the, the World Wildlife Fund that he formed. So all of these things, he realised that there was no point um, moping about it. He had a role to, to, he had a role in his life and he had to find things that interested him and that's what he did. You've been on so many engagements and trips with Prince Philip over the years. What always stood out to you uh, from him within his role, but also just as a member of the royal family, as a person to be around? I think what I felt he was able to do was lighten the mood. He was a very clever man when he would 
go into a, get into a room where everybody was very, very stiff and worried about what they were going to do. He'd find someone he probably knew could cope with, instinctively would cope with people um, poking fun or having an inappropriate remark. And then the whole room would burst into laughter. You know that moment when they actually go, oh, thank goodness, that it's now going to be a good event. It can now just go on naturally. And I think he was always able to prick that bubble um, and did so very successfully. He would do so with sort of slightly pertinent remarks. He even remember on his last official engagement, well, the one when he retired, actually, he went up to a, a Royal Marine at the very end who described what they'd been doing and how they'd been doing these things and said um, <laughs> that he ought to be locked up. <laughs> there are many people who would agree across the UK that he has really had a huge impact on young people across the country through the Duke of Edinburgh Awards scheme. Um, there are many youth who are now young and even older adults who sort of owe their lives to the scheme. Would you say that that's one of his sort of greatest legacies that he leaves behind? Yeah, it's one of them. I think that a lot of people were able, young people that were not academically necessarily the the greatest or the brightest were able to achieve great their great actually fulfill their potential which is what he was saying don't think you know you you should be put on a, a scrap heap go out there and fulfill your potential live your physical side of things are important as important as your mental side of things in fact they can enhance that but if, he, if anything i think he was someone who really believed in young people and when you speak to young people when they met him they loved it. They found him really quite refreshing because mm. he wasn't somebody who would be dealing in platitudes. He was a straight talker and he was a, a bit of a national treasure, I think. People misunderstood him, uh, but I think in time they realised just exactly what he has achieved for Britain and in terms of supporting the Queen was a, an immense job. We hear a lot about him as as a father, as as a husband, and of course as as the consort to the Queen. But we don't often hear much about his role as a grandfather or a great grandfather. Are you able to give us any insight to that? Yeah, I think he, he didn't have a particularly um, important role as a great grandfather. He would look at the little babies and say how cute, then walk away. I mean, you know, there were a lot of them looking quite young, and you know, with all the great respect. Very old people don't tend to be overly bothered with little babies, particularly grumpy, you know, grumpy old men, as it were. But as a grandfather, he was, you know, very, very supportive of his, of his grandchildren, all of them actually. And I think he did a very, very good job in 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 helping them, particularly William and Harry during the death of their their mother. Over the days ahead, we'll obviously hear from other family members paying their respects to his life, but also rallying around the Queen. It's obviously a difficult time with COVID restrictions. We, of course, heard the news today that the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, had visited Windsor Castle to see his mother. What do you think we'll see from other family members over the days ahead? I think they're, they will oblige, They will have to... This will be a funeral that is revolving around COVID. There'll be restrictions. Anything to do with gathering of crowds will be restricted. And they'll just have to do what they can according to the rules. So I think, yes, there will be respects for him and there will be a chance to, you know, to mourn with the Queen, but they'll have to do it within the restrictions. That's very clear. 99 years, a life fulfilled. 
so many engagements. I think it's 20,000 or over 20,000 solo engagements over the years, 830 charities he supported. He has achieved a lot. Do you have a personal or favourite uh, memory or story uh, from Pr Prince Philip's life? Well, for me personally, when I met him, it was it was when he was, he, he spotted me in the line at the In and Out Club where I'm a member and he said, and a special lunch for members if you've been there 50 years. He said, what on earth are you doing here? And I said, well, I I can go if you like. And he said, well, you're here now. You might as well eat, not that you need it. So, I mean, I think he was, <laughs> that was quite funny. But for me, I think it was um, his 90th birthday. Um, his, he, the fact that he was talking about, I've done my bit and I, I'll move on. But of course, he carried on working, he's working so hard. One of the great things he did say, Omi, was that when someone said, what's, you know, would he, is he looking forward to being 100 like the Queen Mother a few years ago? He said, I can't think of anything worse at all. Um, I can't think of anything worse. Almost bits of dropping off me already. Um, sadly, he got his way and, and didn't have to celebrate his 100th birthday, which, funnily enough, the way that it's worked out would be exactly how he'd want a more low-key event. He didn't like personal praise, and I think, actually, he would, would enjoy a smaller ceremony. That was royal correspondent and author Robert Jobson joining us from Buckingham Palace. His book, Prince Philip's Century, The Extraordinary Life of the Duke of Edinburgh, hits all good book retailers from next week. The Duke of Edinburgh famously said on his 50th wedding anniversary to the Queen that tolerance is the one essential ingredient of any happy marriage. After the break, we'll be taking a look at that marriage and the story of where it all began. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back. Well, to those of us around the UK and across the Commonwealth, he was the longest serving royal consort in history, serving alongside the Queen for 65 years. Around the world, tributes continue to pour in, remembering the legacy and life of Prince Philip, who passed away at 99. But for the Queen, his passing also marks the end of a 73-year marriage. That marriage started with a fairy tale romance, and earlier today I caught up with royal correspondent and author Victoria Murphy. And in her book, The Queen, A Life in Pictures, she retraces some of those first steps in their royal romance. Victoria, this is something that you have really spent a lot of time looking into. Today has obviously been such a celebration of not only his life and his legacy, but also the romance and that love story of the Queen and Prince Philip. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because um, same as you, Omid, you know, I've been covering the royal family for 10 years now and been attending engagements for a decade. And so at the beginning of my time covering the royals, I did actually go along to some of Philip's engagements. I saw him at the end of his working life. Um, I covered some engagements when he was with the Queen as well. And obviously he was very much there in the public eye at any major events at that stage. Um, but what you don't get from even doing 10 years is what he was like as a younger man in person. And I think, you know, for so many people, 
he's he's been seen as an elderly man because he has been he was old for so long um and actually to look back and kind of give equal weight to all of the decades which I did in the book I very much tried to pick photographs that had an even span across the time scale of his life so that I could showcase everything and that really gave me I think a really far greater appreciation for him as a young man and realizing things that I hadn't perhaps known before like for example he has written several books actually and he has also gained his RAF wings and his helicopter wings and his private pilot's license and he was very active when he was younger he was a, a polo player a keen polo player and that's quite well known and then he very much championed carriage riding when he gave up polo playing and it really kind of gave me a sense of of this very energetic very dynamic person that he was which obviously you know no no one in their 90s is the same anymore so I, I really I really enjoyed that and yeah as you say you know their love story has very much been gone over today and it, it genuinely is a love story yeah it's been you know 73 years of marriage and I think that's been a highlight today for many to be able to look back at that from even from those first moments and I think you sometimes forget that it was obviously when he was a young naval cadet that Prince Philip first even sort of encountered Prince, uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, just 13 years old. And then, of course, it wasn't for some time until uh, the palace have, uh, even confirmed any sort of romance until they're engaged when she was 21. But I think to be able to look back at those very early years of the romance and see, you know, what started, to, started it all has been actually quite heartwarming. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, as I've been saying to people today, you know, their marriage was very much a love match, which we expect now people to marry for love. But also, if you look back over centuries and generations of royalty going back, that actually wasn't always the case. You know, royal marriages were often arranged or a suitable match was found. And for that marriage to have been so successful over so many years, despite ups and downs, absolutely ups and downs, but it is an example of a really enduring love. And I think people feel really touched by that. And yeah, looking back at the pictures of them, I mean, when they first met, obviously she was 13 and he was, you know, much older. So there was quite a, quite a big difference at the beginning. Um, but then they wrote to each other during the war. And I, I mean, I've, um, as I'm sure you have, you know, read a lot of the books that have been written about the romance and personally my favorite book that goes over this is Marion Crawford's book the Queen's mm. former Duchess. and it, I mean you just don't get a better account than someone who was absolutely there and who saw everything with her own eyes I mean there's nothing like it when it comes to, to history and so reading what she wrote about Philip and I think she was Obviously, it's been that book is now looked at as if it was, you know, hugely revelatory. But actually, I think she was actually quite discreet in the way that she described a lot of things. But it's so clear from the book just how in love Elizabeth was. Um, you know, she describes her as being kind of pink faced when she first met him and how excited she was when they were writing to each other during the war. And then subsequently, when uh, he, he came uh, when he'd finished his service in the war and then he would come and visit her at Buckingham Palace and, and and she talks a bit about 
the, the kind of informality of the relationship and how Philip wasn't really, um, he wasn't a polished courtier. And you forget that actually back in the 40s, there was a lot more deference and there was a lot more formality. So he would have felt, I think, very much like a breath of fresh air at the time. Um, and, you know, just how you get a sense, I think, of how much fun that they had together as a couple and how much they enjoyed each other's company. And that is something that really has continued. You know, if you look at the pictures of them throughout the years laughing together, there's so many really great images of them laughing in public. And I'm sure in private, you know, they, it was at times the same. And so it, it it's a very sad day, but it is also their story, I think, is a really happy story. Yeah, when we obviously look back at him as the consorts, he was that sort of constant companion in the Queen's life. But I think people are always interested to hear how, as a family or as a sort of a married couple, their roles within their sort of family life were actually very equal. And it was quite the opposite to uh, how the Queen is as head of state. I think so. And I think one of the things that is definitely true is that you know, there's that famous quote, isn't there? Philip is the only man who can treat the Queen simply as another human being. And I think she values that. That was um, her former private secretary said that. And I think that there's really something in that, you know, because her across the world, or whoever she meets, she is treated with such reverence. And even among her staff as well, there's, there's reverence there. And even with her family, you know, Prince Harry has said, I still view her as my boss. And there is a love and a, a grandmotherly relationship, but there is also a reverence and respect for her position. Um, and so when I think with Philip, I think he, he really is the person who can treat her exactly as, as you would treat another person and, and as a husband would, would treat a wife. And, you know, there, there have been, I'm sure at times, disagreements and I think that must be must have been incredibly important to her and incredibly valuable to her I think to have to have that a relationship that allowed her to be treated like that a very sort of grounding thing. When we look at their relationship in more recent years of course he in his sort of retirement years has been able to spend more time with the Queen and we've definitely seen her as she sort of dials back on some of her work also being able to be at home, would you say that they've sort of entered or they had entered a slightly different sort of phase of their marriage in the more recent years, especially during the lockdown where they've been by each other's side probably more than they have in one period of time for throughout their whole marriage? Yeah, I think so. And I think that because their lives, let's never forget, you know, they're not ordinary, are they? They live live and, and have lived extraordinary lives. And the you know, the amount of travel that the Queen was doing in her 70s and 80s was far more than most people of that age would do, perhaps. And the amount of work that she was doing and continues to do. And, and they, you know, a lot, in so many ways, their lives aren't, aren't normal. But I think what we've seen with the lockdown, particularly, where they were spending their time in the same place, because, of course, before that, he was spending quite a bit of time at Wood Farm in Sandringham, and she was often at Buckingham Palace when she was working. Um, they they had perhaps settled into a life that was more similar to uh, other couples who were fortunate enough to both reach that age together and, and be together and that sort of companionship and that level of of comfort of just being of, of having that person by your side who knows you better than anyone else and who you can just be completely yourself with and so I think 
that there will be a you know a real feeling of loss for the queen because he he was her absolute companion and i think in recent years when we've uh, in recent yeah in recent years since he retired in 2017 when we've seen her by herself we have seen her by herself in public a lot but we have known that she's always going to go back and be with philip in private and i think it will feel almost more poignant and sadder now to see her publicly on her own because you know when she goes home she's also on her own now you you were able to really dive into the archives for your book and I guess really sort of retrace the footsteps of, of not only the Queen's life but also her life with Philip. What surprised you the most, or what sort of warmed your heart the most about their their life together? Interesting question. Um, I think I mean a lot of it. A lot of it wasn't surprising in the sense that you know we we have seen so many of those moments, so many of those mm. milestones. I think I spent quite a bit of time looking over a lot of the footage that some of the footage that is available from that royal family film that of course has been taken down that was on the bbc in 1969 and that 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 is the you know the kind of thing that i think it's most interesting to see because we see a lot of the royal family in the public eye and i've i've you know seen philip in public in person and and actually i think his demeanor in that that film and in those private moments is very different there's sort of a real sense of calm and almost a more sense of gentleness, I think, actually, in some of that footage, which doesn't, perhaps there's a more brusque, there was a more brusque sense that came across when he was doing his duties, when he was at his official engagement. Um, so seeing him in those relaxed moments, and I did really want to convey that. It was quite challenging because I had a you know restriction on a certain number of, I couldn't use every picture, obviously I had to choose, and I wanted, there was so key moments that I wanted to hit that I you know a lot of the pictures were used up with those moments finding an image of those moments and so then I was really trying to get the right balance of enough pictures across the different decades enough pictures showing other different members of the family enough pictures in formal attire versus relaxed attire but I wanted to show the breadth you know the breadth of everything that that they have both that the queen has done and also in the chapter about philip that he has done um and I, I chose a quote for the opening of that chapter which i do think really sums up their relationship and also sums up him and the, the, the no-nonsense witty attitude that he has which is um I, and this might not be i might be paraphrasing slightly here apologies but it's um it is uh you know um um, tolerance is the success to any happy marriage and you can take it from me that the queen has the quality of tolerance and abundance and I just thought that kind of summed him up because it's he's very witty it's very self-effacing it's quite no nonsense but it also spells out the fact that actually they have had a very successful and very happy marriage based on a real kind of mutual understanding it's it's interesting, you know, Prince Philip is such a strong character and, and, and a very big character in many ways. But of course, as consort, he is always sort of in the background or, or literally a, a step behind. How do you think he sort of fared with that role in terms of sort of accepting his position um, and, 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 and generally sort of coming second to the Queen at all times? 
Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because so much has been said about this. And generally what is said is that it it was very challenging because here you have effectively an alpha male um, because of the generation that he belonged to and also because he was a very dynamic, high-achieving individual. Um, and he had a very successful naval career. And he was marrying somebody and knowing that in doing that he was taking on a job that meant that he would always his whole life would revolve around his wife's job and she was going to have the top job for life and I think that I I agree I think that must have been very difficult and very challenging but I also think that as a man of his generation with a very strong kind of sense of duty and tradition I also think that he accepted those ideas he accepted the concept that this is the way it is and this was the tradition and this was the way it had to be I don't think he actively fought the fact that he was second in command I don't think he had any designs on doing that at times there were frustrations that came along with it but I think he always accepted it as a fact and I think that really is the strength of of what he achieved because underlining everything was this sense that he knew what he'd signed up for and he remained completely committed to it. Uh, Of course, over the days ahead, we're going to be seeing uh, more from other members of the family. We heard today that Prince Charles had visited his mother at Windsor Castle, obviously to check in during what is no doubt an extremely difficult time. How do you think we'll see other family members sort of paying their respects and perhaps showing any sort of public displays of uh, remembrance or support for the Queen um, and, of course, the memory of, of their father or grandfather or whichever role he had to them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the original plan it has got to change and there was a very clear plan um, for what would happen in the days following a death announcement to mm. up to a funeral and a burial so now that has been changed and we are expecting I think to find out a little bit more um, in the next day or so about exactly what this new plan will look like but I think it's quite clear that the royal family are very keen to not to do anything that that is disruptive to the COVID effort because we saw them today put out a statement where they said you know we're asking people not to not to gather encouraging people to perhaps leave charity donations instead of leaving flowers and I I think that was perhaps reflected the importance of the royal family making that statement you know that we don't want we don't want the public to do anything because of this situation or anything to happen because of this very sad news that affects how things are moving forward with the COVID effort and so I think that's going to be sort of paramount and fundamental one thing I did think was interesting I don't know what your thoughts are on this was um, the Sussex is obviously posted on their website, but they haven't they haven't said anything else. And I'm getting the impression that they're not really intending to be sort of putting out parallel announcements in this situation, which is different to how they've been operating previously. Because previously we've seen, you know, over every other subject, the royal family will say something, and the, the Sussexes will say something, and and it's separate, whereas I feel on this point, there's a real unification. And so I think that yeah. sets the tone 
know, things have kind of come are coming just through Buckingham Palace on behalf of the whole family, which clearly in this instance also very much includes the Sussexes. Would you say, do you think that sort of is... Yeah, I would, I would imagine that this is a sort of an effort that's being led by Harry. I'm sure he's probably thought about this moment a number of times and how they would sort of follow on from it. And, you know, I was not surprised today to learn that they wouldn't be putting out a statement of their own because, of course, that statement from the Queen today really spoke on behalf of the entire family and that that is exactly who the Sussexes are. They're part of that family. And I think perhaps over the, the days ahead or, or even beyond, we'll certainly see various members of the royal family, including the Sussexes, perhaps pay their respects in different ways. But I think that there was a real concerted effort to not do anything that would also detract from what is ultimately a celebration of Prince Philip's life that begins today. And as we all know, it's very easy for the for the um, the focus to change, uh, especially yeah. over here when it comes to the Sussexes. Yeah, I think so. And I, but I also get the impression that generally they 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 will communicate perhaps with the rest of the family if they are going to say anything publicly, which of course they don't do on every issue. Um, but so I think this is something that that they that, that there is an element of unification there. Um, even though obviously that doesn't mean that differences will be erased over other things. But I think that there is definitely a, you know, this, they're working as one um, in how they're communicating over this. That was journalist and royal correspondent Victoria Murphy, whose book, The Queen, A Life in Pictures, is out at all good booksellers right now. Well, before we close out the show, I wanted to check in with Maggie, who, of course, has been on the ground all day. I believe you're at Buckingham Palace right now. I am, yes. We've been here since the news broke this morning. And I have to say, we came before we actually knew what was happening. Uh, we just sent here kind of on a rumor. And uh, I'll actually never forget standing in front of the camera waiting to find out what was happening. And all of a sudden, someone goes, look, the flag's being lowered to half staff. And it was like in that moment we knew what was happening, that it actually you know, was Prince Philip who had passed away. And we got the statement from the palace almost at the exact same time. And so we've been here ever since then, just seeing the steady stream of people in front of the palace as well. Um, they posted the notice of his death on the palace gates for a brief moment and just immediately people coming up to pay their respects, bringing flowers as a growing memorial. Um, it's really been powerful to be here today, Omid. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting as, you know, as someone that's covered royals for such a long time, you know, I've been at some of these briefings for events such as this. There are, of course, the sort of famous bridges briefings that you often hear about. But I don't think nothing can ever really prepare you until that moment that the news is confirmed by the palace. And it has been actually quite moving to see the reaction from the country throughout the day. What started as an incredibly sombre morning with that news sort of first coming out as a rumour and then being confirmed by the palace has slowly turned into what's felt like a celebration of his life and not just his life but also his legacy and of course the, his 73 year marriage and that beautiful love story with the queen and you know you look on it's it's interesting because of course people aren't out in the streets as they perhaps would be due to the national lockdown but when you look on social media and online people are sharing their memories on twitter and on instagram they're changing their profile photos to their favorite pictures 
of the couple and of Prince Philip from over the years. And I think that's really what today should be all about. It's sort of like remembering an incredible, fulfilled life of a magnificent 99-year-old. Yeah, you, you mentioned that 99 years. You know, what struck me so much, Omen, is we've been talking with some of the people that have been showing up here to pay their respects. And, you know, on one hand, everyone says the same thing. It's 99, 95 full, really incredible years. And it shouldn't be a surprise, yet it still feels like a shock. And I think it's partially because he's been such a constant, you know, not only a constant by the Queen's side for more than seven decades, you know, a constant helping her leave this country. Uh, you know, one um, uh, moment I had with someone that really struck out to me was a man who was here and said, you know, in the UK, it just feels like Prince Philip is everybody's great grandfather. Right. And he's just been there. And I think today, all of a sudden, people really realize, you know, he, he's no longer here. And um, for me, too, I just keep thinking about the Queen all day, Omid, because, you know, it, at the end of the day, it is also a family. And to think that today is the first day she's going to be ruling the country uh, without the partner who has been there with her this entire time. You know, that's uh, it's got to be so hard. And even though, yes, he was 99, almost 100, it doesn't really ever take away the, the sting of that either. Yeah, I think people often forget that whilst being head of state is a role that she carries very much on her own, her pillar of strength, her support throughout all of that, and often the first person that she turns to when she needs to consult or confer for advice, has been her husband. And I think this is the first time that really she'll experience this role in a very different way. And, you know, we often talk on this show about the sort of changing face of the monarchy and how things will look over time. And we're now seeing those pieces shift uh, in, in, in quite a sort of spectacular way um, following the passing of Prince Philip. And it will be very interesting to see how over the months ahead roles will begin to evolve and change within the current sort of lineup of working royal family members. I wanted to ask you about that moment at the palace today. They brought out uh, traditionally, as tradition always has it, sort of the, the notice of Prince Philip's passing was brought out on a framed statement that was put on the gates of the palace on the corner where the privy purse gate is. And that's something that usually goes up for several days. It probably would have stayed up throughout the period of the Queen's mourning at the very least or right up until the funeral it's almost sort of that point where people can go and celebrate or show some kind of remembrance it hasn't happened in that way today because of course the government is very cautious about people congregating or sort of getting together en masse and it was removed within a few minutes so how have you seen people on the ground there today sort of paying their respects but in a sort of safe way because you know we heard from the palace that they're now encouraging or the royal family are encouraging people to really do that via charity donations than anything else it's a good point i think you know who could have ever uh predicted that this would happen during a pandemic. And so a lot of the, the celebrations of life and the, the, the official mourning has now had to change because you know, we're still under such a strict lockdown here in the UK. Even the number of people that are legally allowed to attend a funeral is quite regulated. And so even, you know, seeing this growing memorial outside of Buckingham Palace, the police have been doing a great job trying to give people, uh, you know, the ability to pay their respects, but also making sure that no crowds gather. So it's very much been a constant stream of people, but never a crowd, I would say. And so, you know, people 
people walking through, maybe laying a flower if they chose to bring one, and then the police moving them on, trying to keep areas you know cordoned off so you can't get through. Um, definitely doing their best to make sure that this doesn't become something that could be dangerous for people. And I, I'll be really curious to see what happens during the week. You know. Um, was we're learning sort of more details about what this week could look like, what the funeral could look like. It's definitely going to be a different uh, experience than I think, you know, we've seen in other royal funerals in the past and other royal events. Uh, but, you know, e even though it's going to be different and probably quieter than other events, the amount of emotion I still saw and felt here today was so powerful. And so I am looking forward to seeing how the family and the country and the Commonwealth and the world and all the people are able to come together, uh, despite the fact that they might not be able to have the big pomp and circumstance of a a royal funeral they would normally have, but you know, come together in other special ways to really show their respects and share memories, and also you know, uh, be there for the family and for the country in times like this. Hmm. Well, as we record this, it's Friday, the day of the news breaking. Saturday, we expect to hear more details from Buckingham Palace on that funeral. Of course, the royal ceremonial service that it will be, rather than the state funeral, and. You know, I was saying this earlier, Prince Philip is famous for wanting sort of fuss-free everything. And I think his sort of final depart departing moment was also something he wanted to keep extremely pared down. He himself was very involved in some of the planning into his funeral with the Lord Chamberlain's office at Buckingham Palace. And I think due to the COVID restrictions, it's almost sort of had it in a way where we are forced to follow that extremely pared down wish that he had for his funeral. And that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, things happen in, in very mysterious ways. And I think ultimately it's going to be a day, well, the day that he was hoping for. Um, but of course, over the days ahead, we still may hear messages from other royal family members. We know that today there's very little uh, coming from other quarters within the royal households. But I'm sure over the days ahead, we'll hear personal messages from the Cambridges, the Prince of Wales and, of course, the Duchess of Cornwall. We have just seen an update to Harry and Meghan's Archwell Foundation website where they simply removed the, in the entire content, put a, a, a new front plate on that website, just simply uh, a tribute to Prince Philip remembering his legacy. But I'm sure we'll also hear more details on whether Prince Harry will actually be over here for the funeral. From what I've heard from sources in the past, it was his sort of every wish that he would be here for that, no matter what happens. So despite the restrictions, I think we'll hear something on those movements in the days ahead. Yeah, it's a good point. It's it's difficult right now for you know everyone to be able to see loved ones that are abroad or living in different countries. And you know, unless Harry is able to get some type of special pass, you know, anyone coming into the UK from outside of the UK has to quarantine for at least five days. And so, uh, you know, some of these decisions are going to be made pretty soon if you know, he wants to be able to be here for that funeral. So again, I think we'll probably be talking a lot this week, Omid, you and me. Well, Maggie, what a life, what a legacy. It's, I, f I feel like in today's show, it's been so hard to capture all of that. But I think that is exactly what it will be over the days ahead, is sort of different ways of remembering the life, the legacy he leaves behind. And I think over the days ahead, we'll also be hearing about how his life and has had an impact on other royal family members. You know, we often forget that he was the one that was talking about ecosystems and species loss as far back as the 60s before uh, Prince Charles was even doing so. And 
I think he's had a very strong influence on the family around him and that's going to be really interesting to hear how they pay their respects and share those stories in the coming days and weeks. Um, before we go, Maggie, you and I are going to be together quite a lot over the days ahead. Um, there'll be no doubt a lot more coming from Buckingham Palace. So do keep an eye out on ABC News and Good Morning America for the latest developments. Um, and until then, thank you again for joining us on what has been a slightly surreal episode of the AirPod. And I think as we leave, we're going to leave you with uh, ABC's James Longman in London with a look back at the life of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Thank you. A lifetime spent by Queen Elizabeth's side. Prince Philip was a force of nature, the longest serving consort to a monarch in British history. He may have been born a prince, but it was hardship that Philip first inherited. Descended from both Danish and Greek royalty, his family fled war and revolution in Greece when he was just a baby. It said he was carried to safety in a crate of oranges. At the start of a promising career in the military, Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten met the future queen when she was only a teenager. Forced to renounce his own royal titles for love, they wed in 1947. Theirs was one of the enduring marriages of our time. My grandfather was, um, you know, had a very successful career in the, in the military or in the Navy. He, um, he gave it all up to, to, to do his job, and to be there to support the Queen. And together they've done incredibly well. Um, and I don't think they could do it without each other. All too often I fear Prince Philip has had to listen to me speaking. But he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. In some ways, the original moderniser, it was the Duke who wanted his wife's coronation televised, creating a landmark TV event. All this I promise to do. At all times, forced to walk two paces behind Elizabeth, but in life, her equal partner. In private, making major family decisions, like where to send their four children to school. Like all families, we went through the full range of pleasures and tribulations of bringing up children. I'm naturally somewhat biased, but I think our children have done rather well under very different and difficult and demanding circumstances. He was known at times for his sometimes off-coloured jokes in public. Many say the true measure of their marriage was the laughter they shared. I think that the main lesson that we've learnt is that tolerance is the one essential ingredient of any happy marriage. And uh, you can take it from me that the Queen has the quality of tolerance and abundance. It was Philip, apparently, who encouraged the Queen to make that famous speech celebrating Diana after grieving Britons had accused her of being too stoic, too aloof, too royal. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. Guiding his family in times of grief and joy, Prince Philip would live to see Elizabeth celebrate her Diamond Jubilee and the next generation of royals marry and have children. Among them, his beloved grandson William, shoring up the succession with Prince George, the future heir to the throne. He retired from public duties in 2017 and recovering from a hip operation, he made it to the wedding of Harry and Meghan, one of the last events we saw him attend. Prince Philip would make headlines in 2019 when he flipped his car in a terrible crash near the Queen's Sandringham estate. He injured a passenger in another car and was widely criticised for not apologising immediately. Since then, he was barely seen in public. The Queen often left to perform her duties alone. 
Prince Philip will be remembered as an old-fashioned royal who, above all else, was dedicated to service the British people and, after decades by her side, his queen. James Longman, ABC News, London.